All right, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see you here for this Adventist history class. And today we are going to be studying a very important topic in the history of the church. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer so we can get started. Father in heaven, thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to study our history, and we pray that as we study the things that have happened in the past, that we will learn from them so that we will do the things that were good from the past, and we will avoid the mistakes that were made. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today's class is entitled The the History of Questions on Doctrine, and For any of you who have any um, interest in Adventist history, you will know that the history of questions on doctrine is controversial. And in my hand here is a copy of of the original book, Questions on Doctrine. Still in pretty good condition, actually. And... It was recently reprinted, I believe, in 2003 in what is known as the Annotated Edition. And it was originally published around 1957, so the book's been around for over 50 years now. And the effect that this this book has had on the theology of the church is pretty profound. And we're going to look at that today. Now, what's interesting, um, in the annotated edition, George Knight, who was the editor, wrote an introduction, and his very first sentence, he, or first, yeah, the very first sentence, the very first thing he says is, questions on doctrine easily qualifies as the most divisive book in Seventh-day Adventist history, a book published to help bring peace between Adventism and conservative Protestantism its release brought prolonged alienation and separation to the Adventist factions that grew up around it. So that's one historian's take on the effect of questions on doctrine. And the first question, just to look at the background, is why was questions on doctrine published? I mean... Seventh-day Adventists had a pretty good grasp of what their beliefs were. So what was the background that led them to publish a book about the doctrines of Adventism? Well, the story begins with a conference president by the name of T.E. Unruh. And T.E. Unruh was president of the East Pennsylvania Conference. And he was listening to a Protestant theologian by the name of Donald Barnhouse give studies on righteousness by faith from the book of Romans. And T.E. Unruh is a conference president of the Adventist Church. He writes a letter to Donald Barnhouse and tells him that he has been very blessed by the messages of righteousness by faith that Barnhouse has been teaching on, the, on his radio program. And <clears throat> Donald Barnhouse expressed great surprise 
that a Seventh-day Adventist leader <clears throat> would find light, so to speak, in the teachings of righteousness by faith by a non-Adventist. This particular theologian, Donald Barnhouse, just assumed that Adventists were off on a certain wing and that they would not have anything in common with what he was teaching with respect to righteousness by faith. And the truth of the matter is, that's the way it should have been. Now, <clears throat> what happened, to prove what I just said, Barnhouse writes back to Unruh and says, hey, nice to hear from you. Maybe we can meet for, <clears throat> for lunch sometime. And T.E. Unruh says, hey, that sounds like a good idea. I'm sending you the book Steps to Christ. You can read it so that can give us some opening dialogue to talk about righteousness by faith when we meet. So Donald Barnhouse reads the book Steps to Christ, and he writes back and says, this book with respect to righteousness by faith is false in all its parts. And says this book is totally wrong with respect to righteousness by faith. So to Unruh's credit, he sort of backed off <clears throat> and said, well, maybe I don't want to talk to him because Unruh, of course, believed in steps to Christ as well, but somehow he liked what he was hearing from Barnhouse. So the story continues. <clears throat> After that interchange, Barnhouse became more interested in what Seventh-day Adventists believe. <clears throat> and so he dispatched a young man who was working with him by the name of Walter Martin. And these names should be fairly familiar to you if you're familiar with Adventist history. <clears throat> and Walter Martin contacted Barnhouse <clears throat> and he said that he wanted to have a sit-down meeting to find out exactly what Seventh-day Adventists believe on several key issues. And he told Barnhouse, look, I don't want to talk to just any Seventh-day Adventist. I want to talk to the leading theologians of the church. I don't want to waste my time with the, the people down here. I want to go to the very top. And that's actually a fairly reasonable request if you think about it. Why would you talk to somebody who may or may not, so, so to speak, speak for the church when you could go straight to the top guys, so to speak? So that's what Walter Martin wanted, <clears throat> and he told um, Barnhouse and some of the other leaders that by that point he had respect for Adventists, he had read over 40 books by Seventh-day Adventist authors, and he wanted to find out more about what Seventh-day Adventists believe. So the group of Adventist leaders that eventually sat down with Barnhouse and Martin were Leroy Froome, W.E. Reed, George Cannon, and Roy Allen Anderson. Some of these names may be familiar, some of them may not be. Leroy Froome had been the director of the G.C. Ministerial Association from 1941 to 1950. When these meetings took place between the two sides, it was 55, 56. Um, but he still had considerable influence within the General Conference. W.E. Reed was a field secretary of the General Conference. George R. Cannon was a professor of theology at Nyack Missionary College in New York. And Roy Allen Anderson was the then director of the General Conference Ministerial Association. Now, you'll notice that there's a key omission 
of leading theologians of the Adventist church from that time. And the key omission was M.L. Andreessen. M.L. Andreessen was the leading theologian on sanctuary theology, on atonement theology, on Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, and a lot of key issues with respect to salvation. But he was left out of that committee. <clears throat> We've never you know, been given a good reason as to why we can come up with some reasons. We'll talk more about Andreessen later. Now, when <clears throat> the committee met, Barnhouse and Martin had four theological points that they had concern with, re with respect to what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And <clears throat> here's the four points that up front Martin and Barnhouse told the Adventists they had serious issues with. Number one, that the atonement of Christ was not completed upon the cross. So that's, that's an interesting issue. Number two, that salvation is the result of grace plus the works of the law. Of course, we know Adventists have been accused through the years of being legalists, so this was one of their contentions. Number three, that the Lord Jesus Christ was a created being, not from all eternity. And it is true that some pioneers believe that Jesus was a created being. Number four, that Jesus partook of man's sinful fallen nature at the incarnation. So the, the issue of salvation being the result of grace plus the works of the law really wasn't as much of a problem. We could show from the Bible that we didn't really believe that. Um, and that Jesus was a created being not from all eternity. We, we could show how Ellen White clearly shows that Jesus had been through all eternity and not a created being. That wasn't a problem. Um, and Ellen White's writings were also clear that our own works don't save us, and we can show from the Bible the same concept. But the issue of the atonement and the nature of Christ quickly became a sticking point in the discussion because the, one of the issues that I haven't mentioned yet was that Martin and Barnhouse were working on a book of various denominations, and they were deciding whether or not to include Seventh-day Adventists as, um, as one of the denominations that would be a cult. And of course, Froome and some of the leaders didn't want these leading evangelicals to identify them as a cult. But these leader, or these Martin and Barnhouse... <clears throat> We're basically saying these four points, if you say that Jesus had a fallen nature, if you say the atonement wasn't finished at the cross, we are going to identify you as a cult. So that's sort of the, the pressure being applied to the Adventist group of leaders. Now, <clears throat> here was a problem for Froome. Froome was sort of spearheading this work. Froome took a poll of Adventist leaders and nearly all of them believed that Jesus had a fallen human nature. So most Seventh-day Adventist leaders in 1955-1956 
believe that Jesus has a fallen human nature. So how are you going to tell Martin and Barnhouse something else when most of your leaders believe the very thing that they believe makes you a cultic denomination? That puts you between a rock and a hard place if you don't want to be identified as a cult. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this raises some questions for me as we get into some of the issues. <clears throat> First of all, <clears throat> why did we need to have a dialogue with Martin and Barnhouse? Now, question, to... it's a rhetorical question. <clears throat> Why did we need to have a meeting with them? Now, let's think about it in this context. <clears throat> and hear me out <clears throat> on this point. Martin and Barnhouse came from mainline Protestant denominations. And the truth of the matter is, they were coming from some of the daughter churches of the mother in Revelation. Which means that they're part of Babylon. Amen. Now, here's something to consider. Is it wrong to dialogue with Babylon? Not if you take the opportunity to defend your faith. If you're defending the faith, hey, maybe some bright minds in Babylon will see the beautiful truth of the Bible and say, you've got it, I'm coming into your fold. But it doesn't seem that these representative group of Adventist leaders were trying to do that with Martin and Barnhouse. They were just trying to say, hey, we're on the same team here. Now, in the Bible, a very similar scenario happened with King Hezekiah. Leaders from Babylon come to God's people and they say, what is it that you have? And Hezekiah, instead of saying, we have the truth of God committed to us, let me show you the special message that God has given to us so that you can receive salvation as well. Instead, he's like, look at all our riches. We're part of the same team. You have riches in Babylon. We have riches in Jerusalem. Let's just all get along. And it seems that Martin and Barnhouse didn't get a full picture of what Seventh-day Adventists believed. They got a lot of what Adventists believed, and, and actually much of what is in this book, Questions on Doctrine, is actually truth. There's a lot of truth in this book. It's not 100% error, um, but that's what makes it even more problematic, really. So... <clears throat> That's one of the issues. So, first of all, why were we dialoguing with them? If our motives were dialoguing with them is so that we would avoid being classified as a cult, if you ask me, and of course I'm not a leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, so this is just my opinion, but um, I'll take being called a cult any day over compromising God's truth. So, that didn't seem to be the issue, though, with, or a concern with Froome and some of the other leaders. Now, here was the other problem. F Martin and Barnhouse 
drew the line in the sand and said, if you believe Jesus had a sinful nature, if you believe the atonement is finished at the cross, you're a cult. Well, why would they say that? Well, it's helpful for us to understand the theological background that Froome and, and um, oh, not Froome, Martin and Barnhouse were coming from. Martin and Barnhouse came from Protestant denominations that had a Calvinist background. The Calvinist background, of course, has a predestination undertone to it. Free will is minimized. And with that background, what you end up having is predestination. We're all born sinners without a choice. Some of us are saved. Some of us are lost. And obviously, Jesus would have to take an unfallen nature if we are born sinners. And the atonement was finished at the cross because once Jesus died on the cross, that took care of the sin problem, and that's it. So that's sort of the Calvinist way of thinking. And the Adventist background came from an Arminian Wesleyan background, which taught the concept of free will. That when we are born into this world, we are free agents to choose good or evil. And because of that, Jesus could take the same nature as us, and he did, and he showed us how to live an obedient life. When he died on the cross, he made a complete sacrifice. Then he goes to heaven to finish the atonement. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that the, in, that the anti-typical day of atonement began on October 22, 1844. Now, immediately you have a problem if you believe that the atonement was finished on the cross and then at the same time you're teaching that we're living in the anti-typical day of atonement. How can the atonement be finished on the cross and we be living in the anti-typical day of atonement from 1844 at the same time? That's hard to mesh. So what Froome and the other leaders were trying to do to reach an agreement between a Calvinist mindset of predestination and everything was finished at the cross with an Arminian, Wesleyan, Adventist background of free will. It's like trying to mix oil and water. The two don't go together. And maybe Froome didn't see that. But if you, if you read some of the books about the history of questions on doctrine, Froome was really more of a historian than he was a theologian. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't know anything about theology. He did, but with respect to understanding the implications of cause to effect from point A to point Z of a theological implication, perhaps he didn't understand what was happening. And other theologians in the church saw that. One theologian, for example, I'll read you what he said, if I can find all these books here. <clears throat> was F.D. Nickel. <clears throat> How many of you know who F.D. Nickel was? Longtime editor of the Review. He wrote books such as The Midnight Cry, Ellen G. White and Her Critics, Answers to Objections. He was a defender of the faith, and he knew our message cold. And he said in page 13 of Fork in the Road by Herbert Douglas... Um, let me see, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, page 37. He, this is what he said. He wrote to the general conference president of the time, 
And he said that many of us on mature consideration are unable to support the material in this book. And it says he feared that the QOD trio, which was Froome, Reed, and Anderson, had, quote, either not sensed as they should the full import of most distinctive doctrinal differences with the world, or else unwittingly succumbed to the temptation to blur deficiencies in order to find a middle ground of fellowship. So here was a leading Adventist. He was the editor of the review. And he's saying, you know, this just isn't making any sense here. And behind the scenes, <clears throat> there, some of the associate editors of the review, editors of the Bible commentary, had access to the original manuscript because one of the editors or one of the people overseeing the book, I think his name was Thurber, Merwin Thurber, was giving them an inside look. And what many of us don't know, or perhaps, is that a lot of material that would have been in QOD was taken out by some of these faithful Adventists that said, hey, you can't put that in a book about Adventist doctrine. We don't know what that doctrine was. But there reached a point when Froome dug in and he said, that's enough. What we have is what we're going with. And so that is what we have in this book, Questions on Doctrine. Now, now that we've talked about some of the background, let's look at some of the theology of the book. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> there were 48 questions that were asked of this panel. And if you look at the inside cover, it says, prepared by a representative group of Seventh-day Adventist leaders, Bible teachers, and editors. That's three people. Um, you, you can decide for yourself if that's representative. Now, 48 questions. <clears throat> and let's go... Now, we've talked about the nature of Christ and the atonement and all that. But let's go to the remnant. Now, <clears throat> here, here's a problem right off the bat. Because Seventh-day Adventists have always believed that we're, we're the remnant church of Revelation. Here comes members of the fallen churches of Babylon... And they ask, and this is page 187 of the original edition, they say, it is alleged that Seventh-day Adventists teach that they alone constitute the finally completed remnant church mentioned in the book of Revelation. This is page 186. Is this true or do Seventh-day Adventists recognize by the remnant those in every denomination who remain faithful to the scriptures and the faith once delivered unto the saints? Do Adventists maintain that they alone are the only true witnesses of the living God in our age, and so forth? So, <clears throat> here's the answer, and this is page 187. They say, We believe that the prophecy of Revelation 12:17 points to the experience and work of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but we do not believe that we alone constitute the tr true children of God. Now, <clears throat> First of all, did they answer the question? They say, well, yeah, we're part of the remnant, but hey, there's God's children in every church. So it's sort of like a politician evading the question. They're not really saying there, well, we only constitute the remnant. They say, well, yes, we're part of the remnant, but yes, God has his children in every church. But that didn't answer the question. 
And admittedly, if you're trying to meet, reach common ground with people that are part of Babylon, and they're saying, so you're the remnant and we're not? Oh, well, you know. Um, so that's, you, you start to see some of the compromising mentality. And then it gets more interesting. Page 192, <clears throat> they say, um, Seventh-day Adventists firmly believe that God has a precious remnant, a multitude of earnest, sincere believers in every church, not accepting the Roman Catholic communion, who are living up to all the light God has given them. So now they're saying that the remnant is in every church. Now, let me ask the question, what is the biblical definition of the remnant? Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, can you be a child of God and be observing Sunday? Yes, you can. If you don't know the truth of the Sabbath, you can be God's child and be observing Sunday. Does that make you part of the remnant? Biblically speaking, no, it doesn't. That is why the remnant calls people out of Babylon. Notice they call God's people out of Babylon. And those are God's people, but they're in Babylon. So that's a key distinguishing point. And that was not addressed in this book. It was totally minimized and diminished. So then the next question, logically, is Babylon. So now notice this. Here's the, this is question number 21, page 197. The question is, do you Seventh-day Adventist teacher believe as a body that the members of the various Protestant denominations as well as the Catholic, Greek, and Russian Orthodox churches are to be identified with Babylon, the symbol of apostasy? And the one-word answer is yes. That's not to say that God doesn't have his children in those churches. He does. That's why we call them out. Now here is the answer to the question in the book Questions on Doctrine. They say... <clears throat> We fully recognize the heartening fact that a host of true followers of Christ are scattered all through the various churches of Christendom, including the Roman Catholic communion. These God clearly recognizes as his own. Now that's true. God recognizes them as his people. That's why he says, come out of her, right? So these are his people. That is a true statement. Here's the next sentence. Such do not form a part of the Babylon portrayed in the apocalypse. If that's the case, why do we call them out? Do you see the point? If God's true people who are in the Babylonian churches are not part of Babylon, why do we call them out? So there's no need for our message if we don't need to call them out. So you've just destroyed the three angels' messages with that argument. Now they go on to say that they believe the papacy is Babylon and that other churches can be Babylon as well. But they're saying, well, God's faithful in Babylon aren't really part of Babylon. So these are two key distinctive doctrines. And yeah, we start to talk about the nature of Christ and the atonement. And that's important, obviously. But the remnant in Babylon, I mean, that's crucial. And it's interesting that the 50-year QOD conference that happened a little over a year ago, all of the papers were about the nature of Christ and the atonement, and none were about Babylon or the remnant. And there should have been some discussion about that, in my opinion. Um, now, now we'll get into some of the more controversial areas. The nature of Christ. <clears throat> this, again, as I, re as I mentioned earlier, Froome took a poll of Seventh-day Adventist leaders, and nearly all of them believed that Jesus had a fallen human nature. Now let's see what 
Froom and Company say about Christ. In their appendix about the nature of Christ, they have a whole appendix of documents. The famous heading, this is on page 650 of the original edition, they say, took sinless human nature. Now, that's their view. And if they want to say, this is what we believe about the nature of Christ, you know, we can study it. And if you want to say, this is what I believe, okay. But remember, they're saying we are representative leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And most leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church said Jesus took a fallen human nature at that time in the church's history. That's probably not true now, but it was back then. Now, notice what they say. They say that he took our sinless nature. And then they have some some quotes in here that are, are worth quoting. They quote Signs of the Times, June 9, 1898, where Ellen White says, We should have no misgivings in regard to the perfect sinlessness of the human nature of Christ. That kind of makes it sound like he had a sinless human nature, if that's the only quote that you read, but she did say that. She says also, As the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. If you read the rest of the quote, she says, So it may be with us. Um, So... They just put part of the quote in there. Now, this is where things get interesting. Then they say, he bore, he, he, they're talking about Jesus' nature. He says, with respect to the weaknesses that human beings have, they say, he bore them in his perfect sinless nature. Again, we remark, This is page 59 and 60. Again, we remark, Christ bore all this vicariously, just as vicariously he bore the iniquities of us all. So notice what they're saying here. And I'm not sure that any Seventh-day Adventists even believe this today. They say that Jesus was a human being vicariously, that he really wasn't a human being, that he came and just as he bore the sins of the world, even though he didn't sin, He bore our sins vicariously, and we believe that. And yet, they say he bore human nature vicariously. Now, that's a problem, because the Bible doesn't teach that, and Ellen White doesn't teach that either. And then notice what they say. They take a bully pulpit here, and they say, it is in this sense that all should understand the writings of Ellen G. White when she refers occasionally to sinful, fallen, and deteriorated human nature. And then they quote a few things. We read that Jesus took our nature. He took upon himself human nature. He took the nature of man. He took our sinful nature. He took our fallen nature. He took man's nature in its fallen condition. Then they say, all these are forceful, cogent statements, but surely no one would designedly attach a meaning to them which runs counter to what the same writer has given in other places in her works. Now, what is that? saying no one would designedly attach a meeting to them which runs counter to what the same writer writer has given in other places in her works. They just did that themselves. That is what they just did, and then they're saying, hey, you better not do what we just did to the other statements that clearly prove what we're saying is wrong. What we're saying is the way Ellen White's writings on the nature of Christ should be interpreted, case closed, moving on. Now, let's just read a few of those other statements to balance out the picture. And to George Knight's credit, he puts them in the appendix of the annotated edition. 
here's a few of these quotes. Um, these are Ellen White quotes. <clears throat> Review and Herald, December 15, 1896. Clad in the vestments of humanity, the Son of God came down to the level of those he wished to save. In him was no guile or sinfulness. He was ever pure and undefiled, yet he took upon him our sinful nature. Then, <clears throat> Review and Herald, September 29, 1896. Christ, the spotless Son of God, honored humanity by taking upon himself fallen human nature. And she goes on to say, He lived on this earth to show by his perfect obedience to his Father's will what humanity could become by partaking of the divine nature. And then youth instructor, December 20, 1900, this is very clear. Think of Christ's humiliation. He took upon himself fallen, suffering human nature, degraded and defiled by sin. And, you know, so there you go. So those are the quotes that balance out all the statements. They say, when you read those quotes, don't attach a meaning to them that goes counter to what we're putting in our book. And yet, the majority of Adventists at that time believed Jesus took a fallen nature. So what happens after they publish the book? Certain leaders publish in some of our publications, no, Christ had a fallen human nature. So that presents a problem to Froome and Martin, I mean, to Froome and the other leaders. So what does Froome say to Martin, he says that those who believe that Christ took the fallen human nature constitute, and notice this carefully, quote, the lunatic fringe of the church. So now, Seventh-day Adventists who believe what Ellen White and the Bible and all the authors have, have basically written up until that time, now they're the lunatic fringe of Adventism. And it would include Ellen White. And then they say, there's always certain wild-eyed irresponsibles in any church, and that's what these people are. So what you see is Froome starts to take a bully pulpit and say, this is what we believe. I don't care what other people are saying. And they're the lunatic fringe. And so interesting developments in church history. Now, <clears throat> what happened, of course, there was the other issue the other theological issue was the atonement. And I don't have time to go into all the details. But basically what happened was <clears throat> Adventists believed that an atonement was made on the cross, but it will be finished in the most holy place, just as the sanctuary teaches. The emphasis of QOD shifted it to the cross, and not nearly as much was said about the second, um, or the most holy place ministry. We're familiar with Ellen White's statement in Great Controversy, page 489, where she says, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. So she's not saying that the cross was not essential. She was, she's saying it's crucial, but what Christ does in the heavenly sanctuary is as essential. And that was not brought forth clearly in questions on doctrine. It was shifted to the cross. And, and so these were some very concerning aspects, the way the remnant message was dumbed down, the way the concept of Babylon was down, dumbed down, the way the nature of Christ. And George Knight even admits in his book that Froome was dishonest in how he presented the nature of Christ. And 
the, the atonement was shifted from an, the two-phase atonement to the cross. And so, obviously, that created a concern among some circles. Now, what's interesting is Arthur White, the great-grandson of Ellen White, and some of the leaders of the Review and Herald and so forth thought that QOD, well, it would be published to appease these evangelicals, and it wouldn't really take off, and people would see it for what it was. But what happened was, as soon as it was published, Ministry Magazine, of course, Froome had considerable influence with this magazine, trumpets QOD as the position of doctrine for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The book is published at a very cheap cost, distributed to all the ministers of the church, and it's identified as our position book on theology, and it gets trumpeted as a key book on theology. And instead of just being a quiet little book to give to Martin and Barnhouse to say, hey, these are, here's some answers to your questions, they're saying, no, this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And so all of a sudden, the people who had stood in the background and said, well, we won't say anything because we don't want to create a ruckus. Now they're realizing, oops, we should have said something. And that, that's a lesson to us. Don't stand in the background when you see something wrong and just assume it's going to go away quietly. Don't be afraid to stand up for the truth. And God calls us to do so. Now, one person did stand up. His name was M.L. Andreasen, as we know, and he wrote letters to the churches. And in the letters to the churches, he, and he had an amazing library of Ellen White's writings, and he had the, her writings indexed uh, at that time before the CD-ROM. He had them indexed as well as anybody. And he addresses the concept of the lunatic fringe. He also um, brings out several quotes from Ellen White about the nature of Christ, showing how the position in QOD is wrong. He has quotes about the atonement. And um, obviously church leaders didn't like him sort of exposing their work. Now, Froome didn't, I mean, excuse me, Andreasen didn't back down. And he, um, he did have a fairly combative attitude. I can hardly blame him, though, because the church was having its foundations undermined. So what did the church do to Andreasen? They removed his credentials. He's a retired minister, former president of Union College, conference president in New York. And they say, we're tired of you saying what you're saying, so you lose your ministerial credentials. And so Froome had to go to the government to get Social Security to pay for his retirement because the church wasn't paying for his, his retirement. Now, fortunately, R.R. Um, R. Beats, who was, I believe, a conference president, um, reconciled with Andreas and shortly before he died, and he got his credentials back um, after he died, and his wife was supported by the church after that. So the church did make up for that mistake. So, um, but that, that's an interesting issue that happened. Now, I want to read one other thing. And this is, so it is true that Andreasen suffered for defending the truth. Now, <clears throat> there were some other people that had problems with QOD. And there was an attorney by the name of Al Hudson in Oregon who tried to draft a resolution to be brought before the 1958 General Conference in Cleveland, Ohio that would state this 
about QOD. Number one, it contains specimens of scholastic and intellectual dishonesty. Number two, it contains duplicity. Number three, it is inadequate. Number four, it contains error. Number five, it is Satan's masterpiece of strategy to defeat the purpose of God for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is in Herbert Douglas's book, Fork in the Road, page 79. Now, that never was brought up to the general conference, but this attorney, Al Hudson, spoke on the phone to Donald Barnhouse. This is what Donald Barnhouse said about Seventh-day Adventists. This is the person that Adventists were trying to appease. Notice what Barnhouse says. All I'm saying is that the Adventists are Christians. I still think their doctrines are about the screwiest, screwiest of any group of Christians in the world. I believe this beyond any question. In fact, the doctrine of the investigative judgment is the most blatant, face-saving proposition that ever existed to cover up the debacle of the failure of Christ to come in 1844, as they said. Then he says, um, Ellen White, she was just a human being in the first place. Now, I recognize clearly that Mrs. White very frequently wrote some very spiritual things, but God Almighty never spoke through a woman. And then he says, regarding Christ's human nature, um, this is what Barnhouse said, they are taking the position, are they not, that Christ has, oh, this is the question, they are taking the position, are they not, that Christ has the nature of Adam before he sinned? Isn't that true? And notice what Barnhouse says, I hope not. Adam was a created being subject to fall. Jesus Christ was the God-man not subject to fall. Hudson answered, And that's your understanding of the position of our leaders? Barnhouse, of course. They have taken it so strongly, and it is their book, QOD. You see, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal sinless Son of God, that he could not have sinned, and we have 18 quotations from Mrs. White saying the same thing and denying what you are telling me. So Barnhouse and Martin basically thought that QOD is saying Jesus couldn't have sinned. And so there's a lot of problems with questions on doctrine, as you can see. What we're going to study next week is the fruits of questions on doctrine. The natural fruits of questions on doctrine were developed in the theology of Desmond Ford. If you want to know how that's the case, come next week and we'll talk about that. So, and if you can't be here, it'll be on audio verse. But questions on doctrine has a significant impact on our church, but it's a reminder to us. We need to stand up for the truth, and if we do, God will bless us. Thank you.